Well, good morning. Before I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, there's something I'd like to read to us. I hadn't planned to do this. I'm very thankful to the team who leads us in musical worship uh, every Lord's Day. Can I reread to you two lines that we just sang together? This was from Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. This is what we just sang together. Lo, how a rose air blooming from tender stem hath sprung, of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old have sung. It came a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. Isaiah, t'was foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, she bore to men a savior when half spent was the night. Would you turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 10? We'll start in Isaiah 10, verse 33. We're pausing from what we normally do, which is to work verse by verse through, uh, through a book of the Bible, right now through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're using last week and this to see uh, together two themes that reach through the whole of Old and New Testament uh, that, uh, when properly seen, really prepare us to understand what has happened in the coming of Jesus. Now, last week, we did that by looking at the theme of the light coming to a people who live in darkness. If you were here last week, you remember that. Jesus, as the light of the world, has come to a people in darkness. We saw that in Isaiah 9. We're going to do something similar again this morning uh, with another picture, another theme that reaches throughout God's Word. Uh, it's something that we, we sing about this year. In fact, we, we, we sang about it this morning. Uh, this time of year, we always tend to sing the wonderful song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you were here for Christmas Eve, we sang this song, and I asked Ken that we could sing it again this morning. I hope that it's not too many times. I, I, I trust that it's not. Um, but it's because in that song we address our Lord Jesus in this way. We say, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thy people. And it's that designation that I'd like us to look at more closely this morning. I'd like to read for us Isaiah 10, 33 through Isaiah 11, verse 5. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This comes amid a context of judgment. Isaiah's been uh, prophesying the judgment that's coming against God's people Israel. And then more recently, he's prophesying that that judgment will turn then against the very oppressors of God's people, that Assyria themselves will be, uh, will be judged. And this is what he's speaking of when we come into Isaiah 10, 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrible power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And let me reread verse 1 of this chapter. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And Heavenly Father, we pause before you now together at this point, and we ask for your blessing upon us. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be together, to worship together as a family of those whom you have called by your name. Father, cause us now, once again, to tremble before your word. Guard us in how we receive it and how we handle it. And we thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 11.1 is where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to do like we did last week, and that is take the picture that's given here and see it in its breadth in the Old Testament and see how this translates into uh, the New Testament as well. There are three descriptions from this verse that we're going to examine together, and this will sort of structure our time. Uh, and the main takeaway that we're going to have is not unlike what, what we took away from our time together last Sunday. Last week we saw that all the hope that God has ever given to his people is wrapped up in the person of Jesus This week we're going to find that all the righteousness that God requires of us is wrapped up in, finds its origin in, the person of Jesus. Righteousness. You recall verse 5 of what we just read in Isaiah 11, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So let's begin to lay the scene out here in Isaiah 11.1. Do you notice, first of all, as you're looking over that verse, that this is a two-part statement. You have a parallel going on here, which is so, so common in the Old Testament. You have in the first part of Isaiah 11.1, you have a shoot from a stump. And in the second half, you have a branch from a root. You see how they play off of each other? Shoot from a stump and a branch from a root. And it's that word for shoot that the King James Bible renders as rod. That's where you know, so many of our songs come out of the King James Bible. So this is where we get uh, what we sing in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The King James translates this this way. It says, A rod out of the stem of Jesse. O come, thou rod of Jesse. What, what we're going to see this morning is that throughout the Old Testament, God uses the metaphor of a vine or sometimes a tree, uh, more often a vineyard, God uses this metaphor of the vine and the vineyard to speak of his people, Israel. And there's something for everyone uh, in the passages we're going to look at this morning. If you love flowers and maybe gardening and growth, there's a lot of vegetation in the passages that we're going to look at this morning. Um, And sadly, if you, on the other hand, prefer destruction and chaos, 
Well, there's a lot of destruction in these same passages that we're going to look at. So there is something for, for everyone this morning. Uh, and I want us to develop our understanding of the picture that's being given to us here by looking at three things. First, I want us to look at the stump that's spoken of. Second, I want us to focus on Jesse and ask what's the significance of the fact that this is the stump of Jesse. And then third, we're going to look at this promised shoot or branch that is promised to come. So that's the way that we'll arrange our time. First, let's look at the stump here. Uh, Why is this a stump? If you're a tree, and I'm talking about your stump, and things are not going well for you at this point in your existence, right? What is a stump? A stump is what's left when the tree has been chopped down, right? That's what a stump is. We need to trace the metaphor here of this tree or the vine. It tends to be spoken of as a tree when the focus is on royalty or kingship. But otherwise, and more commonly, it's the vine picture that we're given in the Old Testament. I had to start our reading in Isaiah 10.33 to get a bit of the context. The context here is that God is speaking to Assyria in this tree language. It's what we read in the first couple of verses there. What God is doing, what he's prophesying that he's going to do, is he is going about lopping down trees. Lopping down the trees of Assyria. Chopping them down. That's how God's destruction is being characterized. And in that vein, then, he flows oh so poetically into chapter 11 um, and speaks in terms of destruction as well. But even prior to this, he's been talking about the destruction coming against Israel in the same term. And we see it in 11.1. Their trees are now stumps. Let's take a few minutes. I'm going to bring you to three passages. ask you to turn with me to these. Uh, looking primarily at the picture as a vine. And I want us to understand how God uses this image of a vine uh, and what is said about its destruction. Because remember, we're looking at the reality of a stump here. Turn with me first to Psalm 80, beginning in verse 8. Psalm 80, I'll read verses 8 through 16. And start with this question in your mind. What is the vine here? Psalm 80, starting in verse 8, says this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And here comes a dramatic shift in the tone. Verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
This is a vine, verse 8 says, that has been brought out of Egypt and planted by God. Abundantly clear already who this is speaking of. The vine in the Old Testament pervasively is a metaphor used in reference to God's people Israel. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, God speaks of Israel in terms of it being a vine, a choice vine that he has planted. And here the focus in the second half of what we read is on its destruction. And who destroyed it? Well, it says they destroyed it. So he's speaking about the human agency of someone that has come now and torn down, broken down walls. And he's praying for God's judgment on them. Come back into the book of Isaiah now for the second of three places I'd like us to look in this picture. Find Isaiah chapter 5. I'll read the first seven verses of Isaiah 5. Here we're going to get more detail about the destruction of the vineyard. Remember, our goal here is twofold. Number one, to see the vine as Israel, but two, to understand why there's a stump involved here. Why, why, uh, why has there been destruction? Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 says this. You can sense this is almost a ballad here. Oh, this, is, this is great. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And stop there. If there was any doubt about what the vine and the vineyard is in the Old Testament, verse 7 clears it right up for us. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This is what has been planted. This is what has been taken out of Egypt and planted a choice vine, cared for, cultivated. And what does Isaiah 5 here, what does it tell us God intended with this vine? He planted it, grew it, provided for it, and he looked for what? What does it say? You see in verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes instead. Verse 7 interprets that for us, takes the picture and puts it in literal terms. When it, he looked to it for grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, what that means is he looked for justice as the output, as the fruit of this vine. But instead, what he found was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but what he found was an outcry. 
And you don't need to turn here, but I will just read to you. Jeremiah 2.21 speaks in similar terms. It says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You hear the accusation here. God had intentions for this vine that he has planted. The intention was fruit. The intention was righteousness and justice upon the earth. And instead it yielded wild grapes. The third place I'll ask you to turn is the book of Ezekiel, chapter 19. I'll read verses 10 through 14. Ezekiel 19, starting in verse 10. God speaking through his prophet says this. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard. Planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers' scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, Fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. You can even hear in that some of the themes of exile that we saw last week. Removed, planted in a distant land. No water. Hosea 10, another place you don't need to turn, says this in the first two verses. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. This speaking in terms of pagan altars. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So there are two things we're seeing here as we're looking through this survey of passages, and there are so many more that we could choose. We're seeing that the image of the vine and the vineyard is an Old Testament description by God, pervasively speaking about His people, Israel. And secondly, we're seeing that all human agency is spoken of, that first passage I led you to, spoke about the they that have come, right? Human agency is referenced. But clearly, God's agency is the primary one when we think about the destruction of this vineyard. It's God who has devastated this vineyard. Now, let's go on to the second question uh, for Isaiah 11, and that is the question of Jesse. What does it mean that this is the stump of Jesse? What's the significance there? I mentioned to you before that often when, when the text speaks of kings, it shifts to the picture of trees. Kings are often spoken of as tall, mighty trees. What's important about Jesse is the same thing that's important about the tree, maybe the fruit-bearing tree in your backyard. Well, what do you look to the tree for? It doesn't, it's not about the trunk. It's about the fruit that it puts out, right? That's, that's where the significance comes out. 
Uh, what's significant about Jesse is what comes from Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. And we have to think about why it's so significant here that Jesse's tree has become a stump in Isaiah 11. It's significant for one reason primarily, and that is that we know about this line of Jesse through David to his offspring. We know that God has made specific and very powerful promises to that family, hasn't he? If you were to look back in 2 Samuel 7, where we read about the Davidic covenant being made, you would hear these promises being made to David about his family line. 2 Samuel 7, 13, God makes this promise. I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. It's quite a promise. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from your line, God promises. And verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Those are powerful promises made to a family. It helps us to understand the significance of the Davidic covenant that God is giving uh, in, the, in that chapter. What we have here is this statement that takes the, the fatherly promises and blessing and protection that God has been promising to his people and saying to us as if in a funnel, these things are going to come to my people now through the line of David. He's been doing this in the Old Testament. He made great promises to Abraham. They were inherited by Isaac and then inherited by Jacob, right? The promises have been narrowing. And here we find that those promises are going to come through the line of David. In fact, it's interesting, Jeremiah 33 makes reference to the promises that God made to Abraham about sand on the seashore. Do you remember that picture? Your descendants shall outnumber the sand of the seashore. Jeremiah 33.22 takes that very promise and gives it to David and says of David, your descendants shall outnumber the sand of the seashore. The promises of God to his people will be coming to fulfillment now through the line of David. And this is extremely encouraging and hopeful to a people to hear a repetition of these promises. And yet we come to Isaiah 11. We look at the tree of David, and what do we find? It's a stump. This is even more dire than the general descriptions of God's vineyard being cut down. The trees, the vines have been judged by God, yes. But get this, even the tree of Jesse has been cut down. And it plays itself out in history. David's descendant kings, at this point in the prophecies, are in shackles. The book of 2 Kings ends with the descendant king of David, Jehoiachin, languishing in a Babylonian prison. And we read this in Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the Davidic king, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you, he brings his mother into it, 
I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. And God's people who know God's promises, who believe God's promises, who know what he has promised about the unending presence with David and blessing of David, they hear these things. They watch it play out in front of them. What do you think they're thinking? What has happened? What we find in these events unfolding as they do is that in every moment, even with the Davidic covenant, God is seeking a faithful covenant partner. That's why in the midst of even 2 Samuel 7, when God's giving his promises to David, in verse 14, he speaks concerning discipline and punishment. He says there, concerning David's offspring, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God has bound himself by covenant to David's line inheriting these promises. But it will take a faithful covenant partner for this to happen. So Jehoiachin in Jeremiah 22 is said to be a signet ring that's torn off and thrown from God. But just a few verses beneath that, we hear this in Jeremiah 23.5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. See, the promises have not been forgotten, but they will not come through a branch that brings sour grapes, wild grapes. This is exactly what we have here in Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Amid this ruined vineyard, where is there hope? Is there any hope? Where will any regrowth come from. And God says, look to the stump of Jesse. That's where you look. Amid the appearance of ruin, a shoot, a young twig will emerge. Now with those things in mind, with the, with the settled notion of what the vine is in the, in the context of God's word, with the significance of Jesse and the promises given through that line, Let's think together now about this shoot that's being promised here, this branch. If, you're, if you've left Isaiah 11, go back to Isaiah 11.1 1, and see if you can answer this question to yourself. What is it in that verse that this branch is going to do? What's the branch going to do? Do you see? that it's going to bear fruit? Exactly what they had always failed to do, what every other branch had failed to do, this branch will do. He will bear fruit. We've seen the complaints of God in the passages that we have surveyed. He had planted, cared for, prepared this vineyard, and what had the vineyard done? It had not borne fruit. We've read these. Isaiah 5.2, it bore wild grapes. Meaning, verse 7 there, that he had looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He had looked for righteousness, but he found an outcry instead. We read Jeremiah 2.21. It said that when God planted a choice vine, it turned degenerate and became a wild vine. This is exactly the opposite of what this twig is going to do. 
Look with me at the fruit in verse 3. This is what we began with this morning. This is a description of this vine. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this is what we have seen so far. Here's the ballad. Here's the picture that we've seen. God planted a vineyard. That vineyard is the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Him planting that vineyard was an act of his own free grace. It pictures the covenantal commitment he made with his people. God committed to them. And what did he seek as a result? We've seen that there were expectations upon them to be a faithful covenant partner. He demanded of that vineyard fruit, didn't he? And when it would not bear fruit, he chopped it to the ground. We've also seen at the same time that God made promises to David. In fact, he promised his unending presence to David. He promised a never-ending rule to David. And he promised that all of his blessings would come through the line of David. But even in those promises, it was clear that God was seeking a faithful partner in this covenantal agreement. We already read of the requirements of 2 Samuel 7.14 about the obedience of the son of David. David's royal descendants, it says, will be disciplined rather than blessed when they disobey. And yet God has ordained that his promises will come through the line of David. This is what we've seen. We've seen that when Israel's disobedience reached its limit, God did indeed tear that vineyard down. And when he did, not even Jesse's tree was spared. Because Jesse's tree also had borne wild fruit. Wicked fruit. All of that helps us to appreciate the promise of Isaiah 11.1 because it's in that context that God shows that his intentions all along of fruit, good fruit from the vine, are going to come to pass. There will come a shoot, a branch, that will bear fruit. And that branch will indeed come from the root of Jesse. When all that is accomplished, though every man be shown to be a liar, God will be shown to have been faithful the entire time. All of his promises will have come true. All of his intentions will have been accomplished. When that branch emerges, this will be clear. So how does this accomplish for us the goal that we said at the beginning of our time this morning? We said that this morning what we will see is that all of the righteousness that God requires of us finds its origin in, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. How does what we've seen accomplish that goal. Jesus is the rod of Jesse that is fruit-bearing and the faithful covenant partner. But how does that fruit-bearing relate to you and to me? And the New Testament's answer to this question is that his fruit-bearing is in fact the explanation for every good thing there is about you and about me. 
Let's move into the New Testament now. Armed with this picture that we've gotten from the Old Testament, turn to John chapter 15, verse 1. Words spoken into a context, as words always are. John 15, 1, this is what Jesus says to us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. There's one thing that I hope you can see more clearly now about this verse. It's that Jesus was not displaying creativity in coming up with this image. This is a statement that would have been immediately understood by his disciples. In fact, D.A. Carson, speaking about this context, says that this entails that Jesus sees himself as the one to whom Israel pointed, the one that brings forth good fruit, and the one who supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. It's no surprise in the context of John that Jesus does this. He's been doing this throughout his teaching in John, going back to the Old Testament pictures and saying, look at me, look at me. Earlier he's called himself the true bread that fell from heaven, the true manna. I am the true bread. Earlier he's called himself the good shepherd. Pointing back to another common reference for the leaders of Israel. They were called shepherds of God's people. They were condemned in places like Ezekiel 34 for being selfish shepherds that just feed themselves. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. We've seen this morning, I hope you've seen, Israel is the vine. Israel is the vine. It had become a vineyard. In bearing no fruit, it had been torn down, and yet God's promises remain. And what God intended for it was inevitable. It would bear fruit one day, and Jesus says, I am that vine. I am the true vine. That statement coming from the mouth of our Savior means two things for us this morning. First, it means this. It means that Jesus is the one who fulfills the righteousness that God requires. The reformers got it right. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved by one means only, and that is by being clothed in an alien righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For Jesus to speak these words, I am the true vine, is for Jesus to claim himself to be the one who fulfills the righteousness that God has required. He is at last the faithful covenant partner that allows a people to be in God's presence and to receive all of his blessings. So that what that means for us now is that what is required for us to stand blameless in God's sight is not to be blameless ourselves, but to be in Christ. This is what we must be. We must be in him because he is the true fruit-bearing vine. I must be in him. That's why three verses down in John 15, 4, the command will be from Jesus, abide in me and I in you. I am united to him. If I am united to him, he is united to me. I have access now to the life-giving vine. 
and he becomes my righteousness, which is in fact exactly what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says of him, that Christ became to us righteousness. The men's, the men's uh, Bible study group on Sunday mornings, we recently went through 1 John 3.23, which says this, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. Abide in me, and I in you. It's wonderful. These, these two pictures... Uh, are put together, they are married perfectly in Jeremiah 23. Can I just read to you Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. We read verse 5 already, and I'll repeat this here, but notice what is added in the second half of this, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And now here's verse 6. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. He is your righteousness this morning. If one day you stand in the presence of God unaccused, it will be for one reason, and that is because you are clothed in the righteousness of the true fruit-bearing vine who has accomplished all things. We unite to Him by faith, believing in God's promises, trusting His Word, and we are clothed with a righteousness not our own. It's one thing that this means for us if Jesus, our Lord and Messiah, says, I am the true vine. That's what this means. That means he's the one who fulfills all the righteousness that God requires. It means a second thing as well, more of an implication, I think. And that's this. If I am in him, if I have been grafted into the vine, that is Christ, my own bearing of fruit, and we've seen what that means, Righteousness, my own bearing of fruit, is inevitable. It's inevitable. Here's how the Bible pictures this. Jesus, as the true vine, is expanding throughout the whole world. And what God is doing as this happens, as he's taking each and every one of his elect and grafting them into the vine as word goes forth, as the gospel spreads. But notice what Jesus says about this Reality, John 15, I'll pick up in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You can kind of hear the two-sided coin there of that last statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do as much as a branch can do that's been snapped off from the rest of the tree. You can do nothing but wither and die. But what's the implication? In me, what can you do? This is the 
non-mystical, non-health and wealth context of statements like, I can do all things in Christ. If I'm connected to the life-giving vine, that means life is flowing into me. There's a lot to be said about those two verses in John 15, much of it for another time. The point for us to see this morning is this. Just as all the hope that has ever been offered to us is found solely in the person of Jesus Christ, so all the righteousness that is required of me is found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So that as Colossians states it, what do you know? Christ has come to have first place in everything. God has so seen to it in the telling of this story that by the end of its telling, every good thing will be seen to be tied to the one true vine, the life-giving vine that is Christ. In Him, God is truly glorified by His image in creation. And if we want to play a part in that glorifying of God, there is but one way to do it, only one. And that is to be united to the true vine, which will both clothe us in alien righteousness and finally change us from being a barren tree to being a fruit-bearing tree. I said at the start that uh, this, this message would be full of vegetation. This is what we've come to see. What is God doing in the telling of the story of human history? God is growing a garden to his glory. And he has seen to it that all the fruit of that garden has come to flow out of that singular vine, the true vine, which is Christ. And his children are those who long to put forth the fruit that shows them to belong to his vineyard. And this they do. Not perfectly, not as much as they could do. This is why Jesus speaks of the yielding of fruit in terms of degrees and in terms of a spectrum. But God's children connected to the vine of Christ, they bear fruit. And they must. Because as they abide in him, he too abides in them. These are the promises that we have from our Father. And they come surely and certainly. And they come through the person of His Son. My prayer is that this Word of God may dwell in you richly as we close out one year and begin a new year. Would you pray with me? Father, we look forward many more of your promises, that while we believe them, we trust them, we have not yet seen them, we've not yet experienced them. You've given us many promises concerning our sure future in the life to come. We thank you for those. We thank you for the hope and the confidence and the courage that it equips us with as we walk as people in a wilderness through this life. And Father, we together as a church family confess to you that we look with great excitement and anticipation at an unending future ahead in which we will praise 
our God and King, to whom we are connected as the one and only vine that righteousness flows through. We will spend forever praising your name through him, bringing you honor through the fruit that he grants to us. And I pray, Lord, that those thoughts, those reminders of your sure promises would greatly bolster and lift up the heads of your people. This we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning? From Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which say this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We are dismissed.